Welcome back to Drop the Subject with Allie and Dr. James Simmons. You've been a doctor for a little less than 24 hours now, which we are celebrating all show long, of course. And also, we are continuing to have some much-needed conversations in response to the murder of George Floyd, the protests that are going on nationwide, the civil unrest that is going on in our country. And we talked to Dr. Errol Southers from USC yesterday, and I wanted to bring on Dr. Robin D'Angelo on the show, who we've had on before. Robin, first of all, welcome. Thank you. And we've talked to Dr. Robin D'Angelo in the past about her article, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. I thought we could start with that and also talk about some of your other publications, which are incredibly important and very needed conversations to have right now. What are the most important and most effective ways that white people can be responding right now? Just your top line thoughts on that. Change what they understand it means to be racist. I'm at a point where I'm just going to say over and over, I'm not racist is functionally meaningless. We have to stop uh, with this idea that we could be white in this society and be free of racism. Every act of racism that you could recognize and identify the people who committed those acts would claim they're not racist. So it really doesn't mean anything. So the very first thing we can do is get ourselves educated uh, and spend some time reflecting on a question that most white people can't answer, which is what does it mean to be white? You know, never mind interrogating James about his experience. Start with some self-awareness about your own, because if you can't answer that question, you're not going to be able to hold what it means not to be uh, white. And you're, you're not going to be able to take in what James is trying to tell you. And you're going to hear any suggestion that you could not be free from racism as a suggestion that you're a bad uh, immoral person. And that's another reason why it's so hard to talk to white people about racism is we've been taught that it's a very simple formula. Individuals who consciously don't like people based on race and are intentionally mean to them. Well, that pretty much exempts all white people from the water we're swimming in, the messages we've internalized, and all the ways those messages seep out, awarely or not, in everything we say and do. I really, I'm struck by what you said at the towards the beginning of that as well, is that, you know, that I've, I've tried to address this so much and it, sometimes it's really difficult, um, you know, as educated and well-spoken as I think I am and have been most of my life. Sometimes when you hear, you know, white people say, well, I'm not racist. What happens is that they just shut down. Mm-hmm. There's this like, well, I'm not racist, so I don't need to learn anything else. I, I'm not racist. So I don't, we need, this conversation isn't about me. I'm not racist. So you can say all of these things, James, or, or anyone, you can be angry but that's not you're not really actually talking about me. There's so many parallels to that that I could draw. How do you break that barrier? <laughs> so when you know that white person says, well, I'm not racist. What's like the what's the next thing out of your mouth? And that's, uh, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> let me let me just I want to really like use this opportunity to do a little bit of teaching for white people listening. Did you hear what James just said? He's not convinced in some ways saying I'm not racist is absolutely a red flag that you are a dangerous person and a difficult person that is not conveying by any means what you think it's conveying. And then the evidence we use to back up that claim that I'm not racist is ridiculous. Right. Well, you know, I'm from Canada. 
Uh, I, I grew up in New York. I had a black roommate. Um, you know, I was in Teach for America. I speak three languages. We, you know, we could just go on and on with the evidence white people use it, which is, is quite ridiculous. I'm a cisgender woman. I'm married to a cisgender white man. Uh, he loves me. But let me assure you that his love for me has not freed him of his conditioning under patriarchy. And on occasion, mm. it comes through. So I might try to connect to something that person can relate to. So if they're an LGBTQ person, I might say, so what comes up for you when, when heterosexual people say to you, I'm not homophobic? Do you just take that at face value? And especially when they say it in response to you trying to point out to them of a homophobic assumption that they just made that they didn't know they were making. I would try to have something that they could relate to. And if they are a minority themselves in some kind of way, uh, you might be able to draw from that. Well, that's the other piece of it that's very important to point out is there's this thing of, I guess, for me as a, as a white gay person to say, well, how could I possibly relate in any way to what a black person is experiencing? I guess, yes, I've experienced sexism in my life. Yes, I've experienced prejudice and negative uh, thoughts and feelings towards me for my sexuality. And also to acknowledge that still does not mean I know anything about the experience of what it's like to live in this world as a black person. So I think it's important, right, to yeah. to acknowledge that, that, yes, I have experienced those things as well, but it's not the same. And I can't claim that just because I've experienced that, that it makes it relatable or the same as. Yeah, you use it to connect, to, to relate, to try to, to try to understand, but you do not use it to exempt yourself. And so often we will use that experience to exempt ourselves. Um, it's, it's so loud where we swim against the current and it's completely silent where we swim with the current. So you're going to be acutely aware of, of where you experience uh, oppression. You, but that doesn't mean you don't have privilege somewhere else. So, so this is what I would say to anybody in this case, LGBTQ, talk to me how being white has shaped how you experience uh, your identity in, in the world. Uh, talk to me about what anti-blackness looks like in the white queer community. Talk to me about who's at the bottom of that hierarchy, even within that oppressed category. Um, Anti-blackness does circulate in the white queer community. Uh, I think that's difficult mm -hmm. to deny. So I usually will just mm -hmm. offer, so tell me how being white, you know, helps you navigate uh, queerness uh, in this society. Oh boy. All right. That question is intense. And it is the exact question that we are going to address when we come back, because that <laughs> comes up a lot. And it has come up a lot in the last few days, uh, given the circumstances of the protests around George Floyd and police brutality and the killing of black men. We are going there with Dr. Robin D'Angelo. And I am loving it. This is Drop the Subject. Drop the Subject. The new Channel Q. Welcome back to Drop the Subject. This is James Q. Simmons, guest co-hosting with your Ali Johnson. And we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Robin D'Angelo, author of White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, and a laundry list of other accomplishments, including being a professor at the University of Washington, which is where she's joining us from now on Zoom. And at the end of the last break, we you brought up this really, really intriguing point that, uh, uh, Dr. D'Angelo, that I, I want to explore a little bit more uh, in the short time that we have left. This concept of how does whiteness help you navigate 
being queer as being queer is your oppression, but being white within that oppression, how does that help you navigate that? And I think that already it starts to be a little bit too complex for a lot of people to go there. And a lot of people have not ever been able to think, well, I'm queer, boom, stop, full stop, hard stop. That's my oppression. But you being white in it actually gives you some sort of privilege as well, which is an interesting concept. Absolutely. Uh, I grew up in poverty. I was raised as a female, Catholic female raised in poverty. I experienced very early classism, sexism. Uh, I internalized a deep sense of, of shame and inferiority. And I also always knew I was white and I knew that it was mm. better to be please. Right. I don't have less <laughs> racial privilege because I experience other forms of oppression. And it, I mean, I don't have more. Uh, I don't have more racism because I because I grew up poor, you know, uh, because we like to kind of offload racism to, to poor white people. But mm -hmm. we also at the same time also know that we're that we're white. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge barrier that we're not also navigating and not na navigating that barrier helps us with the ones that we do navigate. Mm. One thing and, and let me just add a piece. Please. Sure, please. I'm going to I'm going to just go out here. I'm kind of tired. Please. We're in an area where I'm not going to hold back anymore. If I'm going to go and do a workshop and they say this is a a, a gay white male audience, I kind of oh cringe. And so do <laughs> a lot of, of uh, anti-racist educators there's a tendency to be really defensive and to have a really hard time owning privilege, owning that being white shapes that experience. And I understand it. I mean, the oppression is what you're seeing uh, all the time. But now imagine you've added and you're also black. I, I have mm -hmm. to say it again, please. <laughs> you know, that would not be the same experience. Why do you think that like another thing that I, I know that I'm going to be honest and say that I felt and I've heard a lot of other white people say is I feel like no matter what I say, it's going to be the wrong thing. And I'm afraid to I don't know whether to use this hashtag or say Black Lives Matter or do this or do that because I'm afraid of, of saying the wrong thing or offending anybody. What is your response to that? Because, I mean, for me, it's just been about sitting in and just moving past that and being like, you know what, I'm just going to say what I'm just going to be where I'm at and know that I'm going to make mistakes. But I just wanted to kind of dive into that a little bit because I think it's so important right now for white voices to be speaking. And I think there are a lot of white people who use that kind of feeling to almost as an excuse or definitely directly as an excuse. I would say, uh, yeah, you know, toughen up. If you think that I am articulate on this articulate on this topic, it's because I have made thousands and thousands of mistakes and I continue to make those mistakes. The reason the people of color in my life have not given up on me is because I learn and grow from my mistakes. You cannot uh, gain any kind of awareness in this society as a white person around racism without making mistakes. To not do that, to use that as an excuse, uh, is really just to protect your your position and your and your privilege. There's just simply no neutral place. You cannot get something this complex a right by everyone. You can't get it as right as you can by as many as you can, as as often as you can, and um, just endure it. In some ways, it's about you, um, and some ways, it's not about you. So, if I were to say something right now. Uh, make an assumption that landed on James uh, as a microaggression, uh, as a reveal of a, of a racist 
assumption I was making about him that I didn't even know I was making about it. And he had a really strong reaction to me, which, you know, righteous indignation. I would know that, yes, I did that thing. uh, and, And so it's about me, but also, you know, it's the straw, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And that I'm probably actually, it's a moment of trust that James somewhere feels that he could call me in and not destroy the relationship. So I'm going to ask a question of James that I want all the white people to listen closely to his answer, mm-hmm. if I may. <laughs> How often have you attempted to give a white person feedback on their inevitable and often unaware racist assumptions and patterns and had that go well for you? <laughs> I was like daily. And then you said, go well for me. And I was like, oh, never. <laughs> uh, I mean, I do. So li- I have a very interesting experience in that I, I grew up. I'm biracial. I grew up black. I grew up in a black neighborhood in Nebraska. And so surrounded by by white people in a state that is 94 percent white um, and mostly rural and very red. And so I'm I'm a very I'm so comfortable having uncomfortable conversations about race and them not going well mm-hmm. and being able to still move past that. And I've gotten to the point where I kind of like you said before, as long as someone shows improvement or at least an effort towards improvement, I'm, a, I'm not going to completely, you know, we use the word cancel now. I'm not going to completely cancel you because for a while it was the only way I could survive because I was literally surrounded by white people. And it was, you know, I was in a state that was so white and I had to. Now that's different. I think in being in a different environment, the conversations are often better, uh, but you use the word well. And to me, that means like a good, right? It went very well. And that's very rare. I've been asking that question for 20 years and the number one answer honestly has been never and then and then rarely. Uh, And so most people of color actually don't risk talking to us about it. They just put up with it or endure it because it tends to get worse, not better. So I want all the white people to hear and just really want to amplify what James said when he said, if there's some kind of goal to improve, if there, if that person seeks to repair, then it actually deepens the relationship. We're not going to be given up on because we mess up. There's no way we, we could not mess up. That cannot be the reason not to get uh, in the struggle. And I'll never forget a woman of color said to me, good boy, being a white person uh, trying to do this, you know, work on anti-racism must be a bit like being a cat on a hot roof. There's just nowhere you can step where you're not going to burn your feet. And I, and I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm so glad you see that. And then she just looked at me and said, but you stay up on that roof and you keep stepping and uh, you, you don't get to get off the roof. <laughs> amen. Amen to that. Dr. D'Angelo, I, I mean, we could have this conversation mm-hmm. all day long, the rest of the show. Um, unfortunately, we have to go, but I, I am so honored and privileged to have this opportunity to speak with you and to bring your knowledge and wisdom to our listeners and to me and to Allie and, and to all of us, because it's important we have these conversations now. And I, I, you, you have the book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Where else can people find out more information about you, Dr. D'Angelo? Yeah, certainly my web website, robindangelo.com. But I want to recommend two powerful books, both written by black people. Uh, One is called Me and White Supremacy Workbook by Leila Saeed, where you you do the book, you don't read the book. And the other is um, Dr. Eddie Moore's 21 Day Challenge, which is free and you can find it on the internet, which 
actually walks you through. Because just thinking you understand with no actual work or action is functionally meaningless. So Google it, you know, Google it. The information's everywhere in 2020. There are so many good lists. Break with the apathy and the certitude and the complacency that it's not you. Assume that it is you and start uh, reaching out and finding those resources. Dr. Robin D'Angelo, thank you so much. I, I know I've learned a lot and it's been a privilege to have these conversations and, I, and I'd love to have you back on the show anytime. I, I think more of these conversations need to be happening and we really, really appreciate your time. You are most welcome. 